I think a theme in all of our work on resilience that we're coming to the resilience agenda too late. But there's still time. There has to be time. This is Emma Howard Boyd, CBE, co-chair of the Coalition for Climate Resilient Investment, CCRI, chair of the Green Finance Institute and former chair of the Environment Agency. It's always a pleasure to speak here at the Institution of Civil Engineers. As we walk around this building, it's impossible not to be reminded that we are standing on the shoulders of civil engineering giants. But we also know the severe weather brought to us by a changing climate threatens to throw us off. So as well as racing to net zero, we must become resilient and learn to adapt to the future that scientists and climate activists have long warned us about, and which has frankly been a reality for some of the most climate vulnerable countries for decades. She is speaking to the second session of the 2022 Carbon Crunch Summit held in London in October. This was the 10th event and the first to include climate resilience alongside reducing carbon in the infrastructure sector. On July 22nd, we hit a milestone in the UK's climate history when temperatures of 40 degrees were recorded for the first time. More than 2,800 people aged 65 and over died in England during the summer's heat waves. And since then, a third of Pakistan has been flooded. California has been pushed close to blackouts by a heat wave. Europe has suffered spectacular wildfires. The Yangtze River in China has dried up. Nine million people were told to evacuate. A super typhoon Nan Madol hit Japan. And both Hurricane Fiona and Hurricane Ian have wreaked havoc over over the other side of the Atlantic. And I sense I'm only skimming the surface of climate shocks, threatening lives and livelihoods around the world. Just yesterday, the Financial Times reported that more than 600 people have died and 1.3 million have been displaced from their homes in flooding that has hit 33 of Nigeria's 36 states and the capital. These are the dreadful human costs and we are only just beginning to feel the first effects of climate change. As our infrastructure is exposed to greater risks, the impacts on people and communities will be even more profound. The World Meteorological Organization has just published a report which says that the world's energy infrastructure is at significant risk from climate change, as extreme weather events threaten dams, thermal power plants, and nuclear stations. Flood and drought risk was a particular highlight. Despite these risks, energy security is a low priority for adaptation. According to the report, just 40% of nationally determined contributions submitted by the parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change prioritise adaptation in the energy sector. Climate adaptation focused investments in the energy sector remain very low at just over 300 million US dollars tracked per year in 2019-2020. But now, some good news. We now have the data to show that investing in adaptation and resilience works. Last year, the Environment Agency completed the government's £2.6 billion six-year capital flood programme 
on time and on budget. It means that 700 flood schemes are better protecting more than 300,000 homes, nearly 600,000 acres of agricultural land, thousands of businesses and major pieces of infrastructure. The government has upped the budget of the new programme to a record £5.2 billion. And if construction more broadly does not properly consider rising floods and extreme heat, low-carbon infrastructure could become prematurely obsolete. But right now, we are in desperate need of hope. But hope is not about pretending that everything will be fine. To me, hope is not something that is given to you. It is something you have to earn to create. It cannot be gained passively through standing by and waiting for someone else to do something. Hope is taking action. It is stepping outside your comfort zone. And this is the bit that will give you a clue as to who said that. Hope is not passive. Hope is telling the truth. Hope is taking action. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. This episode is the second in our two-part special on Carbon Crunch. We've partnered with Mott McDonald in celebration of the 10th edition of the event, which as we mentioned in the opening, was the first to include carbon resilience. If you haven't listened to the first episode on decarbonisation, check the link in our show notes or look for part one in your podcast app. When thinking about decarbonisation, it's hard to avoid the sensation of running out of time or the feeling that something is approaching. For resilience, as Emma said at the beginning, there's also a feeling of regret at the time and missed opportunities that have passed. We haven't avoided the effects of climate change, and so we now face the twin challenge of resilience and decarbonisation. However, not everything is doom and gloom. The real world has always been about trade-offs. Infrastructure resilience always was a smart bet, but the increasing costs of doing nothing are making it an essential bet. But as we will see in this episode, it does not necessarily have to be in competition with other sustainable priorities. It can complement them. Around the world, infrastructure and buildings are being damaged by increasingly severe and frequent weather events. Sea level rise and essential services are being disrupted. Denise Bauer is the External Engagement Director at Mont MacDonald, another leader in building relationships and collaboration. Her role at Carbon Crunch was to set out the initial case for resilience alongside decarbonisation. Around the world, infrastructure and buildings are being damaged by increasingly severe and frequent weather events. For infrastructure owners and operators, revenues and profits are being hit. Repair and maintenance bills are rising and it's becoming harder to attract investment and secure insurance as value is being lost. So we must address the impacts of climate change. I know I keep saying this, but I want to be really clear about how immediate this threat is to us all. Failing to adapt and build resilience will make much infrastructure and therefore entire communities unsustainable. Insurer Munich Re calculates that in the first half of 2022, climate-linked extreme weather caused $65 billion in losses worldwide. That's double the losses for the same six months in 2018. 
IPCC data shows that 3 billion people are now classed as living in areas that are vulnerable to climate change. Infrastructure is everything. Energy, water, wastewater and transportation. Trillions of pounds of investment will be required worldwide, but so far, infrastructure owners and operators have struggled to set out a business case to show this. I am pleased to share that the situation is improving. At Mott MacDonald, we've been working with the Coalition for Climate Resilient Investment to develop the Physical Climate Risk Assessment methodology. PCRAM for short. It's potentially one of the big wins that could make the case for resilience and finally unlock real funding. Basically, PCRAM does what it says. It provides a methodology that allows you to assess and understand exposure to physical climate risks. It can be applied to existing or proposed assets and examines the probability, severity and consequences of harm. It shows infrastructure owners where to prioritise investment in resilience and it also enables resilience options to be assessed for their effectiveness. Check the show notes for more information on that one. Showing how to make that smart bet even smarter. Resilience is critical to the functioning and prosperity of communities and so we desperately need to make that business case. Richard Thorpe is the engineering director for High Speed One, the 110-kilometre high-speed rail line between London and the Channel Tunnel. And so we've got a concession to, to operate and maintain and renew the railway. So the important thing there is we're privately owned, so we're not part of the national rail infrastructure. Like a lot of major infrastructure, the concession is owned by two pension groups. And they're really keen to make sure that HS1 gives the return that they need it to give over the, the 30 years of the concession. So we're just heading into our next price review. So absolutely perfect time for us to be thinking about how we price in infrastructure resilience into that. But aside from the usual commercial realities, the case for resilience faces one further complication. Covid, which slashed revenues earned by all forms of transportation. So we're not awash with money to spend on renewals and resilience. So we have to be really, really careful about what we, what we spend money on and how we articulate that. Richard says that resilience is, frankly, a compelling business case. Probably no different to any other business case for investment. It's got to be uh, based on evidence and also based on efficiency and economy. So it's kind of building in resilience measures into, uh, into interventions that are already planned to make such interventions as efficient and low cost as possible. But the key to the evidence, I think it's got to be really accessible to people who are, who are investing and spending their money. It's got to be applied to the, uh, the asset and the project. And it's also got to be relatable. So we've got to be able to kind of say, right, if this happens, this is, this is what's going to happen if we don't spend that money. But I think the key bit is the accessibility point. I see my job as translating the science and the, all of the, the work that the consultants do into a language that firstly I understand and I can, I can interpret and understand what that means to my assets, but then I can also articulate it clearly to the people who are going to pay for it. And I think getting those, those steps um, right and accurate is the, is the most important thing. The next part of the puzzle is to understand the views of investors and policymakers. The Coalition for Climate Resilient Investment, or CCRI, was launched at the UN Climate Action Summit in 2019 to support such groups. 
It has 120 members, with $20 trillion in assets under management. This is Alex Shavaro, a strategic advisor at the Coalition for Climate Resilient Investment. From the point of view of the investment community, uh, I think there's uh, in some ways five key issues. The first one is for them and the entire um, infrastructure-related uh, community to understand the value created by investment in resilience. In other words, to shift the debate from this being about the idea of an incremental cost to it being about creating value. This first requires thinking about the entire life cycle of an asset, where an upfront capital expenditure on resilience results in reduced operating and maintenance costs. And then the second thing is to identify how that incremental investment in resilience will lead to more predictable net operating revenues. And I insist on the word net. It's not just revenue, it's also revenue minus cost and indeed any, um, uh, any repairs that may need to uh, happen. So that's the first aspect, mm -hmm. determining and identifying, quantifying the value creation. The second is to contrast this with risk transfer options. The practice of asset managers today is to insure against risks and do a cost-benefit analysis. What I think that, that doesn't take into account is the dynamic aspects of resilience and the fact that certain insurance products may no longer be available at some point in the future or that indeed their premium might increase very significantly, all of which are data that we don't have today. So that cost-benefit analysis would be incomplete. Better to invest in resilience as a known quantity. Third point, we've, you've heard about it uh, a few times already, but is to have a uh, methodology for doing that. And so at CCRI, with the very significant involvement of Mark McDonald's and indeed using case studies such as HS1, we've developed the physical climate risk assessment methodology, otherwise known as, as PCRAM. And so our suggestion, strong suggestion, is that this methodology becomes mainstream in the design of assets, but also in the appraisal of investments by the investment community and in lender due diligence. The fourth point is that this form of assessment should be done by the entire investment community as part of its due diligence, much in the way environmental social impact assessments have been done for decades. And finally, resilience assessments need to be done at all of the key points in the life of an asset. Not just at the onset, not just during the design, but perhaps at completion. Uh, importantly, uh, when there is any transfer of ownership, uh, when there is a refinancing, when there is any expansion, where in the case of a regulated asset, there is a review of the uh, regulated asset base. So all these very important aspects, points in time, ought to have some form of resilience assessment. And Alex makes one final point that's directed more at the workings of the finance community itself. It is also to think as to how the de-risking of an asset through investment in resilience should translate into a lowering of the cost of capital of that asset. And at the moment, that link is somewhat missing. And I think the challenge for all of us involved in ESG and in resilience is to translate that and have a dialogue with uh, investment professionals so that they also can take all the good work that's been done and translate that into a reduction in cost capital so that more money is channeled more effectively towards resilience. In 2021, the UK's Treasury launched the UK Infrastructure Bank into this arena. It's an independent but state-owned entity, the sort of organisation the British government refers to as an arm's-length body. 
The UK Infrastructure Bank as well is um, one year old. Um, it's, a, it's a new policy bank. It has 22 billion to invest in um, infrastructure on the private side, lending to local authorities, as well as providing guarantees. And um, we have two strategic objectives. One is helping tackle climate change and in particular helping the UK to achieve net zero by 2050 and local economic development. This is Ileana Lazarova, head of ESRG at the UK Infrastructure Bank. And note that R in her job title. The bank includes resilience within the usual environmental, social and governance grouping. One of our investment principles is to unlock private capital. So um, I think um, one of the, the main things on how we can invest more is collaboration between the public and the private sector and more public and private partnerships because there's a lot of money to be deployed um, in, in resilient infrastructure, in achieving net zero, and it, it can't be done just by one of the either public or private investors. Then there is the importance of transparency to potential investors. And as Alex also alluded, understanding how the, the risks can be clearly quantified and how they can clearly be married to, to better valuations, because infrastructure assets are very long term. And if you're only doing appraisal at the, at the beginning, it's, um, it's hard to marry the investment that you can make in resilience, how it's going to improve your value down the road. The bank also hopes to see the development of nature-based solutions that offer return and add to the business case of resilience. So, work to do on the finance side, but a growing awareness that resilience isn't an expense if considered properly. But on the infrastructure side, there are tools and improvements underway to help make this case. They say there is a continuing lack of data on the vulnerability of infrastructure to extreme weather and the steps being taken to manage interdependencies across the sectors. And this is the space that Credo is in. This is the problem that we're trying to solve. This is Sarah Hayes, who works at the Connected Places Catapult as the strategic engagement lead for Credo, short for Climate Resilience Demonstrator. So Credo is a climate change adaptation digital twin. We bring together data across energy, water and telecoms networks. We're working with Anglian Water, with UK Power Networks and with BT, who bring their people and their data to this project. So we're able to bring together data about these infrastructure assets into one place so that we can create a, a big picture of the infrastructure system to start to see how all the different assets connect up and what the system looks like. One thing they're looking at is the impact of future flooding scenarios on the infrastructure system. So just by bringing together this data into one place, you can start to see those interdependencies across the, the, across the different networks. And we have a flood model which looks at future flooding scenarios. So it will look at, say, a one in a hundred year storm and, and looks at the um, surface water flooding scenario arising from that. And in the digital twin, we have an asset failure model which looks at the probability of assets failing when they are wet. And then we have a system impact model which takes those wet failed assets and propagates the failure across the whole system. So you might get to see unexpected impacts such as assets failing in dry areas because they are dependent on the failed assets in wet areas. 
So we can use this kind of digital twin to help us think about what can we do to prepare in advance of these kind of extreme weather events happening or how can we better respond. Credo was initially launched through the National Digital Twin Programme in the Centre for Digital Built Britain. See Engineering Matters episode 31, Creating a National Digital Twin, for more info on that project. And now it's been taken forward into its second phase by Connected Places Catapult. And in this second phase, we're focused on planning and reporting. So how can we use the Credo Digital Twin to plan the networks to increase resilience? And how can we report on levels of resilience across the system? And in the future, if we had a live data connection to these infrastructure assets, we'd be able to use a Credo Digital Twin to inform an emergency response. But not everything relies on modern technological marvels such as Connected Digital Twin. Organisations can build resilience across systems by communicating and collaborating with each other, both in their long-term planning and in the way they respond to emergencies. A good example of this is Water Resources Southeast, which is an alliance of six water companies working on a multi-sector resilience plan that will lead up to the end of the century. It's based on data from agriculture, power and other sectors, bringing them all together to work on the bigger picture. For example, designing a pipeline that can pump in two directions can protect two separate regions from drought with one piece of infrastructure. And improved customer relations unlocks the potential for superior demand management during these drought periods. If water companies speak with one voice on the issue of drought, there's a better chance customers will listen. We are at a moment in time when transformational changes are happening in infrastructure, as well as society at large. As we get to grips with the reality of anthropogenic climate change, there's an opportunity to embed resilience and adaptability into this change right from the start and approach the challenge intelligently. Lisa Constable is the strategic lead for weather resilience and climate change adaptation and the Great British Railways transition team. It's an organisation that works for government to consider all of the priorities around rail together and then comes up with optimum solutions for the future. It's an excellent example of a major asset base taking joined up action towards a climate resilient approach. Looking at the future and, and the next 10 years for resilience, I felt that it was better to talk about in the rail industry's plan for climate change adaptation and how we're building that into the transformation of the railway over the next 30 years. The Williams-Shapps Plan for Rail was published in May 2021 and named for Keith Williams, the chair of the Independent Rail Review, and Grant Shapps, then Secretary of State for Transport. Its implementation is the purpose of the GBRTT. We have linked to the white paper in the show notes, but the government has given the organisation five key objectives based on this. Improving value for money, improving performance, providing multimodal options for getting end-to-end -end along the journey, maintaining a safe railway, and delivering financial sustainability, or reducing cost to government. In response, the GBRTT is working on a strategy to move towards these objectives. Now, delivery of all of these objectives is very significantly impacted if we can't keep the railway open because of bad weather. And the final objective is delivering environmental sustainability, which is our decarbonisation goal, protecting biodiversity, addressing air, air pollution 
and protecting transport links by investing in climate adaptation. And so my task was to come in and develop the climate change adaptation chapter for the strategy. And I'm presenting the draft of the climate change strategy, which is going through various internal discussions. And should be submitted to government by the end of 2022. We've all seen the pictures waves completely washing away sections of track, uh, heavy rain causing embankment failures and flooding. This summer we had significant impacts from heat, actually shutting the railway rather than trying to run trains and risk damaging the infrastructure. Leaves on the line at autumn and trees coming down, you know, we're coming into autumn season and storms and um, wind blowing objects onto the track. Trampolines and balloons are very common um, and then snow. All of these weather types have impacts on the railway and trying to manage 30,000 kilometers of track, long linear infrastructure across the whole country with you know, millions of different types of assets is a really big challenge. The starting point for Lisa's assessment was to look at Network Rail's data for delays and cancellations over the last 15 years. In the old days, we had wet and windy days and we had cold and snowy periods. And now we get everything thrown at us in one. And so we're seeing much more, we're seeing more impacts and we're seeing more impacts from a wider range of weather event types in a single year than we used to. They baselined the data and saw an increase of 17 to 33% in weather-related delays, equating to about 15 to 30 million pounds per year. An example of why investing now is good for payback. So the Conwy Valley line in Wales has been washed away a number of times over the last few years. And the first time we rebuilt it like for like, washed away in the same place three years later. Second time, we managed to get some additional resilience installed because it's really difficult to justify the cost. It's additional cost. There's no, you know, it's adding rock armour to the side of the railway line. Rock armour is a rock embankment at the side of the track. It doesn't seem to be doing anything, but since being installed, the exact same location has flooded four more times. And it hasn't washed out. And the total spend on the resilience was £6 million of a £10 million scheme. And in the last few years, we've already saved £8 million. So it's paid for itself already. It's very difficult to get this kind of data to demonstrate the business case and the reason why doing this. But this is the best example we have and really shows how quickly return on investment can be achieved. But the focus of so much resilience activity at the moment is responsive. In the UK, we have just come out of an incredibly hot summer, so we have a number of hot weather task forces. And whilst that is really, really important, we need to start looking longer term and we need to be proactive in our response to these issues. They came up with a number of strategic areas to deliver adaptive capacity on the railway. The first is strategy and planning looking at long-term climate change adaptation plans, which will be developed over the next five years. Also looking at who they can partner with, where they can take advantage of niche solutions, but also deciding which sections of the railway need to be abandoned. The second is capability and training, looking at improving the maturity of the industry as a whole. So organisations can access each other's capabilities and share knowledge, understanding where to focus efforts on enhancing capability. Then there is information and intelligence, bringing in multiple systems that already exist and will help them understand risk and vulnerability. Plus the expansion of live asset monitoring and technology on train to feed yet more data back to operators. And then finally, investment in resilient assets. 
this is what we're doing already, um, and we can't stop doing that. But ultimately, we need a step change in how much we're investing in our assets. But at the moment, we can't demonstrate the business case for why we need that extra money and where we need to invest it. And so that's where we go back to the strategic planning, which is developing the long-term plans, which say where and when we need to invest. This has been the second part of our two-part special on Carbon Crunch 2022, which focused on resilience. The first episode on decarbonisation is also available in your podcast feed, or check the show notes where we've linked to it. Please also check the show notes and the Carbon Crunch website for more information on the event and the industry's effort to protect against climate change, both the current effects and preventing worse to come. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own stoutly built environment is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, Mott McDonald, and the organiser of this session, Nikki Van Dyke, and to all of the speakers and delegates at the 2022 Carbon Crunch event. And thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn.